This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by the Art of Manliness store at store.artofmanliness.com. You can find Art of Manliness swag. We've got t-shirts. We've got coffee mugs. We've got posters with Rudyard Kipling's poem, If Theodore Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech. We also have our one-of-a-kind products like the Benjamin Franklin's Virtues Journal, our Carry the Fire Zippo Lighter, and our Little Fellow Follows Me print. Check it out, store.artofmanliness.com. And when you check out, use code AOMPODCAST to save 10% off your first purchase. So store.artofmanliness.com, pick up a few things. All your purchases help support the Art of Manliness podcast as well as the content we produce on artofmanliness.com. Thank you. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The marathon race is one of sports' most physically demanding events. To not just complete a marathon, but to compete in the race at its highest levels takes an incredible amount of dedication to training, recovery, diet, and mindset. My guest today gives us a firsthand look at what that kind of dedication and strategy look like. His name is Jared Ward, and he placed sixth in the marathon at the 2016 Rio Olympics and eighth in this year's Boston Marathon. But Jared is more than just a runner. He's also a coach, a statistics professor at BYU, a husband, and a father of four. Today, I talked to Jared about how he balances all those aspects of his life, even as he trains for the 2020 Olympics, and about exactly how he eats, recovers, and programs his workouts. We also discuss how he deals with nerves before a big race and stays in a positive mindset while he runs them. And we end our conversation with Jared's advice for amateur runners. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Olympic Marathon. Jared joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Jared Ward, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me on. So you're an Olympic marathon runner. What was your path like getting there? Was running something you became interested in at an early age? Oh, man. I think every runner has a story of how they got to where they got. I mean, I guess everyone in life has a story and mine's a long one. And so we'll we'll try to give the uh, boyfriend version instead of the girlfriend version of the story. But I liked it in elementary school. I liked the days when it, when we run the mile in PE and it transitioned to me eventually being linked up with the high school coach when I was still in junior high and beginning running with the high school team as a freshman before I was actually in the high school. And I really just, I, I really just liked it because I could race myself and I could get faster every week. I mean, at this, this point I wasn't cracking onto the varsity squad. And in fact, I think out of four freshmen on the team, I was probably number three on the descending order list. And so I, I really just loved it for this, uh, you know, the, the idea that I could go out and I could beat myself week in, week out, and I could try to run a faster time than I ran the week before. And and then things started clicking in high school and, you know, grateful for a patient coach that that kind of bore with me through my my early JV days and then set up some opportunities in college. And then my college coach kind of saw me as a marathoner even when I was running five and 10Ks in college. And and so after that was over, I continued uh, being coached by Coach I Stone at BYU and and started doing some marathons and and they just kind of clicked for me. I loved the training. I, I loved the the long distances. I, I think that I'm kind of just built for it. Yeah. So that's interesting. You didn't start marathoning until after college. Is that how most people go? Like, do they start marathoning young or is it something you typically pick up later on in your running career? No, I'd say it's typically at least at the at the kind of the high end level, there's often some track racing beforehand. And I think one of the reasons for that is just that as you work that speed system and that VO2 max type training, you you sort of raise your ceiling for your potential as a marathoner, and then and then you see you see runners kind of transition to to the longer, more aerobic marathon running later later in life after they've already 
trained that VO2 system really well. And I think, you know, and I think it, it, you know, because runners run, you know, late into life and we probably, we probably don't even peak aerobically into our thirties or forties. And I think there's even some academic cases for, for the opinion that we, we never really peak aerobically. All that happens is our, our body can't keep up structurally, you know, our, our bones and ligaments and muscles start breaking down. And so, so I think it, it takes a long time to develop the systems to becoming a marathoner. And there's some other things you can work on early. And so, so no, I don't, I don't think that my, my approach was necessarily uncommon, but I, but I certainly was happy at how I responded to the marathon and, and really fell in love with it so early. So right now you're training for the 2020 Olympics, but here's the thing. You're also a coach yourself. You're also a, a statistics professor, and you're a husband and a father. That's a lot on your plate. I mean, what made you decide against just being a pro runner? I think there's just too many good things in life to just enjoy doing one of them. I don't know, you know, and I, I think, you know, I certainly cut back on distractions as we approach an Olympic cycle, and there are phases where I've, I focus on one aspect of life maybe a little bit more than another, but I think that balance is a key in general to longevity. And I found that, you know, I'm not going to run all day long. And so I have a few choices with what I can do in those hours in between running. And I can watch Netflix or I can play with my kids or I can teach a statistics class or coach a few other athletes. And so I've just, you know, filled my day with things that I love. And, and, and it's the, you know, it's some of these other things that, that really, fit around running nice, I think. But I don't know. I just think I'm a happier person when I'm doing all the stuff that I like instead of just uh, sitting and waiting for the next run to come around. Right. And I imagine that helps your running too as well. I th- I've 100%, I think so. I think when you get too hyper-focused on, on one thing, you subject yourself to being burnt out from that one thing really quickly, or in the case of running, overtraining and finding yourself injured. And so so yeah, Brad, I, th- I mean, I think it's blessed me in a lot of ways. I mean, are there any like habits or routines that you've developed to help you find that balance? Like, do you have like certain times of the day where you run and then certain times of the day it's like family time? What does that look like? Sure. You know, I'm trying to get up and get out the door to a morning training session as, as early as I can. And on the days when I can get out the door before my kids are awake, it, it normally is a little bit more smooth for me. And then, you know, and then it's the, it's kind of the idea of how do I manage things when I get back? So I, as soon as I walk into the door, I have four kids. Uh, the oldest is seven and the youngest is three months. And so when I walk in the door, those kids are ready for dad to be home. And so it's become a game of, you know, how can I sit in my Norma Tech boots and, and read a book to the kids? Or how can I get them playing around with my vibrating, you know, meteor rollout ball and, you know, give one to them and one to me. And we do some recovery together and they get the kids stretching with me and things like that. And so, so yeah, I, you know, I have some tricks for engaging the kids and then they help me make breakfast and things like that. And, and I have a lot of fun that way. And then, you know, my kids are young enough that at least half of them are still napping. And so a lot of times when it gets to, you know, 11, 12 o'clock, it's time for a kid to take a nap. And, and sometimes I can peel off with that kid and put a kid to sleep and then and then get my rest too. So, so yeah, there's, there's tricks. And, and I think it's important to dedicate time to my kids too. And so some days, some days, certainly it means that, that my kids and my wife, you know, take the front seat and I feel running in, in the cracks. 
you know, my, so my wife delivered our fourth baby three months ago while I was in the middle of training for Boston. And so I bought a treadmill and put it downstairs and I bought my kids some gymnastics equipment and put that downstairs. And so I could take the three older kids and say, all right, we're going to go downstairs and play for an hour. Dad's got to run, but I want to see what you guys can do on the gymnastics equipment. And so I watch them and they play while mom rests with the baby. And so it does, it takes a little bit of planning and some creativity and, and some willingness to shuffle things around, but it brings me a lot of happiness to have kids and to see them grow and, and to be involved in some of the other stuff that I do. So I, I consider it all worth it. That's great. I like, I like that. If you wanted to make it happen, you'll make it happen. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about running and sort of training your philosophy towards training and recovery and all that stuff. Because I know there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are runners or who want to get into running. And I'm sure you'd have some great insights. But let's just look at your training schedule right now. Like how many days, miles are you running a week right now? So uh, I just ran the Boston Marathon 10 days ago. And so I'm just getting back into it right now. You know, I ran six or seven miles yesterday and I did a little kind of a speed play 10 mile run today where I went, you know, a couple minutes faster and then slowed down for a couple minutes and kind of testing things out and, and making sure that, uh, that everything's feeling good. And, and I like to be pretty cautious coming off of marathons to make sure that I'm recovered before I really put the throttle back down again. But, but in general, I train six days a week and I take Sundays off and that's, that's a, a day for, family and a day for church. And, and so I don't, I don't train Sundays. Uh, occasionally I'll race on a Sunday, but I, but I prefer not to. And then the other six days I'll have harder workouts on Tuesday, Thursday, and a long run on Saturday and fill it in with, with mileage totaling somewhere between a hundred and 120 miles a week, depending on where we're at in the training and intensity and things like that. And then, and then throw in a couple of lifts and, you know, probably two or three hours of cross training on the exercise bike, normally downstairs with my kids watching Coco or Moana or whatever they're into. <laughs> well, let's talk, there's a lot of, we talk about strength, right? I want to talk about that, sure. but let's talk about like, how do you program yourself or, or maybe other folks as well? Like, you know, I, I do barbell training. And so I'm typically looking at like three months of like training where you're mm-hmm. first couple of weeks, you're doing volume and then you increase the intensity a bit. And then eventually you peak. Is that some, is there something similar that goes on with your training? Like where you, you sort of break things into cycles? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I consider a, a training cycle around the, the same as is conventional for lifting and, and my lifting cycle kind of mirrors in terms of what we're doing in the, the running stuff. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a 12 to 16 week cycle, maybe as long as, as 20 weeks, if I'm starting really from ground zero or when I'm coaching athletes that are really starting from ground zero. And then, um, and then we, build into it. And so, you know, it's a volume phase at the beginning where for, for running and for lifting, we're building up volume and resiliency to training. And, and then we go into kind of more of a strength phase where we're doing tempo runs and marathon pace stuff. And we're gradually increasing volume as as our body adjusts to that. And then towards the end, there's a little bit more of a speed segment where you cut down on volume and intensity gets a little bit higher. I think in the, in the marathon, that training is a little bit more subtle than if it was a, you know, a 5k or a 10k where you'd really jump into the speed. The reality is in a marathon, you're never going to be hitting oxygen debt. And so it becomes very important to train the aerobic system and then to be well-rested and tapered up before the race. And so I think in marathon training, we see 
you know, this building phase and then our strength phase slowly transitions to a little bit of a speed phase, but on paper, you might look at it and say, no, that's still very much strength, but, but there is, there is a little bit of that. And then certainly in the lifting, you know, I'm, I'm doing sets of, you know, sets of eight to 10 really early in the segment. And then I'm doing sets of seven and sets of five and then sets of three towards the end. And so very much follow kind of the conventional periodization of training. And what does your strength training look like? So you talked about the set, you're doing volume and then increasing intensity while dropping off volume. What kind of lifts are you doing? So power lifts, you know, Olympic lifts like cleans and snatches, squats and lunges and step-ups, a little bit of time on my hamstrings, RDLs, or, you know, I, I love Russian leans or Nordic curls, those kind of exercises. And then I leave about six minutes at the end of my workout for a push and a pull on my arms. And that's about, that's about all I do up top. But in my, my lifting isn't, you know, this massive long workout, you know, it probably takes me on average 40 or 50 minutes to do where I'm doing some sort of Olympic Olympic lift. I'm doing some sort of, you know, something like squats or lunges. And maybe I'm supersetting that with some sort of plyometric. And then I'm doing some hamstring work and I'm pushing a pull on my arms. So, you know, it's, it's very much ancillary to what I'm doing as a, as a marathon runner, but I think it makes a difference. And there's a lot of research out there, the compelling research that says that, you know, when you lift and when you lift heavy, it makes you a more efficient endurance athlete. And so when it, when it comes to running, you know, you, you force, you know, we do the same running motion day after day, your, your muscles are going to slowly lose the volume of firing capacity in them because you don't need to fire every muscle fiber to push yourself for the next step on a 10 mile run, but you get under a heavy bar and you're squatting and you get down there in the bottom of a squat, you, you demand a lot more of your body. And so the, the theory behind that of, of why we see runners more efficient is that it just, uh, it, you know, it makes a difference in terms of the volume of fibers you have activating for you. And I just feel better when I'm lifting. I feel better when I'm strong. I feel like I recover a little bit faster. I'm a little more resilient to injury. And so it's an important part of, of my training cycle, but it's, it's not a very, you know, in terms of the percentage of time I spend lifting, it's, it's a very small part of my training. And what are, where do you fit in your strength training? So you're running in the morning, are you lifting in the afternoon? Is that what it looks like? Yeah. So I, you know, on most days I run twice a day. And so on my hard days, you know, I'll, I'll lift after hard workouts. So typically coach has things set up for, for my more interval like training or, or tempo runs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so, you know, I'll run that in the morning and then I'll come back in the afternoon and do a shorter run to before a lift to kind of warm up. And then I'll do my lift on those hard days. I like my easy days as really recovery days. And so I want, I want the days in between my hard workouts to be rest. And so I kind of try to pack it all into one day and then allow myself some recovery time. We'll talk about recovery here in a bit. What's your approach when you're training, when you have a day, like, so like, you know, when you, when you plan a program cycle, you are trying to pre-plan the stress that you put into your body so you can recover and adapt. But then there's other stuff that comes into life. Like, you know, the kids up until three o'clock in the morning, throwing up, you have a bad night of sleep, which adds more stress to the body. Do you, how do you manage that? Like, are there days where you have to back off a bit and then ramp up again? Absolutely. And I think, I think that is key to long-term sustainable improvement. If you just put your head down and push through, you're liable to get injured. And I, I think, you know, when I was in college and even um, just out of college, you, you know, 
three and four and five years ago as an early marathoner, I think I kind of did that. I just put my head down and said, okay, I'm in the training cycle. So no matter what happens, I'm hitting this workout. And these are the paces I hit this workout in last time. So I got to hit the same paces this time. And to a certain extent it worked, you know, my body was young enough to, to recover and, um, and, and handle that mentality. And as I've gotten a little bit older and, and I just turned 30 and so I'm, not super old, but I feel older um, and I don't recover as fast. And what I've had to learn is that I really do need to, I need to take those kind of things into consideration. And sometimes I wake up and say, you know what, today's not the day. So it's either going to be the same workout, but at 70 or 80%, or it's going to be, we're just going to take another easy today, day to day. And we'll talk with coach and we'll replan this workout when I'm ready for it. And I think this mentality that I, that really has developed for me over this last year has been to just let the fitness come. And so instead of trying to force some sort of result or force the, the weight or the, the times in training, I just say, you know what? It's an effort-based thing. I've run long enough that I know what things should feel like when I'm healthy and I know what pushing too hard is. And so I just let the fitness come and try to be a little bit more patient. And I've, and I've had a lot of success with that. I, you know, I ran my best marathon time, Boston, just a, a week and a half ago. And if you looked at my training, there weren't really any fireworks workouts. There weren't anything where if you compared him with other training cycles that you'd say, oh man, he's, you know, he's you know running faster than he's ever run before that just wasn't the case but in general the big picture was much better there were there were less there were less peaks but there were less valleys and i feel like i learned something about staying consistent and being patient and so yeah you 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 got to and especially as you get older you you got to listen to your body you got to respect your body and you got to take care of it let's talk about recovery uh, what's your approach to recovery so you mentioned some things you're doing you're doing the norma tech you're doing the vibrating massage ball tell us more about that so i married my high school sweetheart from high school actually we met on the track team but when we got married she had been considering massage therapy school of which i was 100 percent supportive and so she ended up going to massage therapy school and is a licensed massage therapist and and that's been a big blessing and so I, you know, I, I, she'll work, you know, if I come home and something has flared up, she has me on the couch, you know, within minutes of walking in and she's, uh, she's working on it. And I think that quick attention to, to injury has, has been beneficial over the last many, many years of our marriage and of, of me competing. I also have another massage therapist that I see sometimes when things are just too crazy at home with the kids. And, and I try to make it a point in training to, to get to him, you know, once every week or every other week. And then, I'm still close at BYU, training with my same coach and, and in fact, running with the guys on the team occasionally. And the trainers and physical therapists at BYU have been so nice to continue to, to spend some time with me when I have something flare up or when I need some attention there and chiropractors. And so, so, you know, I, I do, I do, uh, try to make sure I'm staying on top of these things. And when something flares up, uh, you want to get some attention to it really quickly. And so the, the normatake and the, the vibrating meteor ball and some of those kind of, you know, self-massaging stuff I'm definitely using at home, but I, you know, I'm taking advantage of, of a lot of things. And, and I, and I do, I think it's made it, I think it's made a difference when you're, when you're trying to perform as high as your potential is you're you're putting your body under a lot of stress and and i think it comes back to respecting respecting your body and respecting recovery as much as you respect putting your head down and and training hard 
Well, you, you mentioned you take Sunday off once a week. Are there periods in your training or during the year where you, will you, take, you might take a week or two off or are you always running and you just might taper off and just do a slow jog on those days where you just need a, or those weeks where you need some time off? Really, the, the unless unless in the sake of of injury and that I I really just need to take a minute and reset and get things healthy again. The only time that I take off besides Sundays are right after a marathon, and I'll give myself, gosh, a solid week of at least little. You know, if you're going to call it training, it's twenty minute runs at at much slower than I typically run, and it's more just jogs to try to get my legs feeling better and get a little blood flow in there. It's hopping on a spin bike and spinning for a few minutes, and and sometimes those weeks after marathons are just totally off. I, I don't I don't do anything, and so so I I would say I give myself really two weeks of pretty solid recovery after a marathon. So you know, in the second week it's kind of phasing back in and making sure that I'm healthy and things like that, and then it's just kind of listening to things and you know listening to my body and and if we get to the end of a season that doesn't end with a marathon sometimes there's there still is you know a, a week or two that I just need to take off and reset and I think the reset is as much mental as it is physical so for some people they can uh, wake up the day after a marathon and they can go out for a run and they can continue running every day and it's still a good reset time because they've let go of things mentally and it just works for them and for me the the diet aspect and the training aspect and the focus aspect has just been so much that I'm ready to just say, you know what, I, I don't want to think about that for a few days. And that ends up being a really, I don't know, relaxing and I think a very positive mental thing for me. What does it feel like? Well, how do you feel after you finish a marathon? Are you like, are you like fine like immediately, immediately afterwards and then like the next day? You just feel like someone's beating you with a hammer. Is that what it's like? It's like when I do like when I do powerlifting meets, like yes. I feel fine as soon as I'm done with it. But like the next day when I wake up, I feel terrible. Yeah. And that's a, so when, when someone who's never run a marathon asks me how it feels after a marathon, that's normally what I say is I say, you know, that day, you know, you've taken off the off season, you go back into the gym and you squat really heavy. And then two days later, you're trying to walk downstairs. That's kind of how it feels. And I think in the marathon, you, you do feel, I mean, I was feeling pretty, you, you walk slow. As soon as you hit the finish line and your body's done, things start shutting down. You know, you've been pushing your body for longer than it's said you could. And so there, you know, I'm walking slow that day, you know, and even just, even just like walking, you know, up the steps into the hotel, I'm holding onto the rail and, and kind of helping myself up. But then, uh, that, that seems like nothing compared to how it feels when you wake up the next day and roll out of bed or when you wake up two days later and roll out of bed. So yeah, you definitely get some of that delayed onset soreness that, that two days after the marathon is, is certainly onset. And then a couple of days later, you start to feel normal again. And, um, the first few jogs feel a little weird. Like sometimes it just feels like your muscles aren't quite firing right. You know, and there's, I don't know if there's any other way to explain it. You're, you're kind of back in terms of the soreness is gone, but it just feels funny. And then normally after, you know, a week or two, it's kind of back to normal. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. It's time we treat ourselves to higher quality underwear, underwear that feels good, provides support, and leaves us feeling fresh. And that's what Saks Underwear is all about. It's the only men's underwear specifically designed with our anatomy in mind. It starts with their ballpark pouch, the game changer. It's these internal mesh panels that keep everything down there in place and separate, so no more sticking, chafing, whatever. It's fantastic. And this fabric they use is super soft, moisture wicking, and lets everything breathe down there and even repels BO. I'm a big fan of the kinetic boxer brief. This comes in really handy on uh, those hot, humid, 
Oklahoma summers when you're down in the garage gym and it's starting to warm up around here. Super comfortable. Also, they fit really snugly. So it's kind of like a compression short as well. If you'd like to try Saks at a discount, I got an offer for you. Get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use my code AOM at checkout. So just order a few pairs of Saks underwear with this great offer. Go to Saks underwear. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com and use promo code AOM at checkout to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. One more time, Saks underwear, promo code AOM. Also by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. You can create your own custom engagement ring right on their website by picking from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive unique designs you can't find anywhere else. Brilliant Earth is passionate about cultivating a more transparent, sustainable, and compassionate jewelry industry. They go above and beyond the current industry standards to offer beyond conflict-free diamonds along with fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals. They even donate 5% of their profits to help build a brighter future in impacted by the jewelry industry. To make your Brilliant Earth purchasing experience as stress-free as possible, they offer free shipping and returns on all US, UK, and Canadian orders. And got a special offer here. From April 29th to May 5th, you'll receive complimentary diamond studs with the purchase of an engagement ring. So if you're looking to pop the question here, you're going to get a two-for-one thing, get an engagement ring, and a pair of complimentary diamond studs. To see terms for the special offer and to shop all of Brilliant Earth selections, just go to brilliantearth.com slash manliness. That's brilliantearth.com slash manliness. And now back to the show. Well, you mentioned diet. What's your diet like? And does it change depending on where you're at in your training cycle? Absolutely. I think, you know, certainly a part of being a marathoner is trying to keep a lean and light frame. But I think the bigger part of it is, is fueling with things that are going to recover you and give you the energy to keep training. And so, you know, I kind of, I picture my a snapshot of my diet would be i i start the day thinking okay i need probably 1500 calories just to live and then for about every mile that i'm running i need another 100 calories and then if i have a lift i need a little bit extra there and uh if i have some cross training i need a little bit extra there and so i very much start the day looking at what my training's going to be and how much that means i need to replenish in my body through the process. And then I break up the day in terms of saying, okay, I need a snack before I run normally high carb. I need to get something in right after I run because that's going to help with recovery. And so that's, that needs to have a little bit of protein in it, but be mostly carbohydrates. And then, you know, I, in my meals, I'm saying, okay, I need to get a good chunk of protein in here and I need to get, you know, eat for volume. Tend, you know, I tend to be just so hungry that I'm, I'm pushing the, the vegetables and things like that just for some volume and then healthy fats. Like I, I, I think that I, well, I've, I've had some genetic testing done and it, it seems that my body metabolizes fat really well, which, which would indicate that I'd be able to respond to a marathon well. And, and frankly, that's what I crave. I crave the savory kind of fatty stuff. You know, I'm eating nuts or nut butters. I'm putting avocado on salads or sandwiches and, and things like that, trying to get you know, healthy dosage of fats integrated into my diet as well. So, and that's kind of the, the, uh, the snapshot, if you will, I've, you know, I've found that eating right after exercising is critical. If I'm hoping to exercise later that day, um, just jump starts recovery glycogen stores are, are most receptive to being replenished in the 30 minutes following exercise. And, and I feel that. And then also getting a little protein in right before I go to bed seems to help me not wake up starving in the middle of the night and, and just helps me feel a little bit better in the mornings. Are you tracking macros or are you just sort of like, well, I need a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat? No, absolutely tracking macros. And I counted calories very meticulously for a time in my life. And I feel like 
that exercise, you know, I, sometimes we get discouraged about embarking on new things, especially as it relates to diet. You know, it feels so, so lifelong and, and limiting. And we are imagining all the desserts that we're going to go without or whatever. But I felt like just the experience of tracking my macronutrients for an extended period of time. And, and maybe you only need a couple weeks of that, but I did it for a couple months. I feel like that exercise gave me a really good handle of just looking at food and knowing roughly what I'm getting from that. And so I, I, you know, I don't have a notepad or an app in my, on my phone in my back pocket that I'm entering in stuff as soon as I eat it. But I have a macro count going on in my head every day, going through the day, making sure that I'm keeping myself fueled and that I'm getting my you know, what's about 150 grams of, of protein in at least every day and making sure that I'm, I'm getting enough in that I can continue to train the next day. And what's your take about like low carb eating or intermittent fasting? Cause I've, in the past few years, I've seen a lot of long distance runners like swear by it. Like this is the thing that's a game changer for them, but other ones who say, well, no, it's like the high carb actually is what we need. So what's your approach to that? So I, I think there's certainly merit to it. And, and there's, I mean, maybe the merit in itself is just that uh, you and I and many others have heard stories of, of people going on these low carb diets and then running really well. I think as it relates to really high level metabolism, I mean, when I'm, when I'm running a marathon, you know, my, my heart rate is probably in the one sixties, maybe as high as one seventy, And I'm, you know, I'm cranking through fuel. And so when I've talked with nutritionists, um, you know, some of the research that has applied in general and has indicated that, that these kind of keto like diets could be beneficial for endurance athletes. Their opinion is that in my case, I still need a very high carb diet just because of the rate at which I'm burning fuel. And I, you know, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have a metabolism that metabolizes fat at a pretty good rate already, which, which seems to be one of the reasons to kind of cycle is to, to train your body to metabolize that fat. And so in my case, um, I'm still relatively high carb, you know, probably 50 to 60% of my caloric intake is carbs, but, but relative to the guys that I'm racing against, that's, that's fairly low. You know, I'd say you look at like the, the East African diet, they're, they're probably eating more like 70 to 80% carbs. And so I don't know, I, I'm an advocate of a, a balanced diet. I'm an advocate of just these whole foods and eating what your mom would put on your plate and, uh, and that kind of a mentality as it comes to fueling. So you mentioned earlier about running is often like, there's a psychological aspect of it. There's a, it's a mental game. Um, how do you keep yourself from being bored or getting burnt out from your, your workouts where it's just, man, you're pounding pavement day in and day out year after year. Well, you just have to bite off what you can chew right now and try to not look so far in the future that you can't fathom it. I mean, as it relates to the marathon, I, I mean, I think, you know, we, we talk about hitting the wall in the marathon, right. And around miles 16 or 18 or whatever it is, runners experience this effect where all of a sudden it feels like you're you're pushing into a wall. And I don't think that it's so much one step we're burning glycogen and then the next step we're out of glycogen and we're burning fat or or some you know crazy thing like that. As so much as it is, you look up and you see mile 16 and for the first time in the race, you say, oh no, there's 10 miles left 
and I don't know if I can make it. And that oh no moment can be so debilitating. Um, I remember running, you know, I was competing in, um, in Rio in the Olympics in 2016. The, the lead pack made a, made a move to separate. Um, there were probably 50 of us running together. And then the guy who ended up winning the race, um, took off. And there were a few guys that went with him. And I was kind of in that middle ground of not really going with him, but not really running with the other guys. And there were a couple of us in the middle ground, but I, I started thinking, oh no, I actually don't feel that good. And I'm, you know, 10, 11 miles from the finish line and I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, and then I start thinking all these, what ifs, well, I'm, I'm running with team USA on my chest. What if I can't do this? What if I'm not tough enough for it? What, you know, what's all of these people, what's coach going to think and what's my wife going to think. And, um, and, you know, I think when you, when you take yourself out of the present one step in front of the other and take yourself into this world of the future, you open yourself up to anxiety and that's what I was feeling. My, and my sports psychologist would, in college would always say, fear and anxiety live in the future. Regret and remorse live in the past. None of those emotions exist in the present. And so he conditioned me to when I start feeling anxious um, or regret or anything like emotions like those to think, Jared, you're not living in the present. You've got to figure out how to get yourself back to the present. And so in this middle of this Olympic race, I started thinking, okay, what can I do? And my next water bottle was in two miles. And I thought, you know what? I don't know if I can make it to the finish line, but I know I can make it two more miles to my next water bottle. So that's all I focused on. I focused on keeping form and rhythm and getting in my next water bottle. And I got there and I drank it and thought, I don't know if I can make it eight more miles, but I know I can make it two more miles to my next water bottle. And that became the theme for the rest of that run was getting water bottle to water bottle and then looking up and seeing the guy in front of me and saying, you know what, I don't know if I can get to the finish line, but I know I can catch that guy and um, working my way up. And, you know, and I ended up surprising myself at the finish line, having worked all the way up to sixth place, which is, which is higher than I thought that, that I could have finished. And I think what got me there, um, was the reality of just running the mile that I was in and, uh, and trying to live in the present. And when I thought back to, Hey, you know, 10, 11 miles ago, I was thinking, I don't even know if I can make it to the finish line. And then I made it to the finish line in sixth. And so I think it can be a pretty powerful exercise to find something that motivates you and something that you can say to yourself or something you can do that gets your mind back to right now and just bites off the chunk that you, that you can manage. And I, so, I mean, so you're just thinking about the, the now, like, but like, do you, what do you do to manage the nerves? Like before the race starts, before you've actually, the, the, you know, the, the starting gun went, goes off, like, do you get nerves before the race or do they, is that not an issue for you? Sure. Sure. I think, you know, almost everyone feels nerves and, and the more times I race and, and the more times other people race, they, I think we, we become a little bit more accustomed to it, but, but the reality is that before the race starts, the race hasn't started yet. And so it doesn't, I don't know how much good it does to worry about what might or might not happen, you know, a mile into the race, you know, with the exception of, you know, we got to have a race plan and things like that. But an hour before the race, you're nervous. What I think about is, okay, I just need to make sure my shoes are tied tight. I need to get one more squeak of water. I need to make sure I'm warmed up properly. Like focus on the things that matter and are relevant to what you're doing right now as opposed to just stressing about what might happen in the future. I think, I think we can always, in, in, almost always, we can use the argument, well, th- I'm not there yet, 
So what can I do right now that's going to help me when I get there? And I, and I think that type of a mentality um, can maybe help eliminate some of that anxiety. Well, let's shift gears to sort of beginner runners. You, I mean, you coach people from all walks of life. You have your own coach. I'm not sure some of the people that you, that you coach are just getting started. When you start coaching people who like they want to start, they want to run a marathon, maybe they've never run a marathon before. Um, what are the most common mistakes you see them fall into when they're first getting started? Uh, honestly, I think it's getting just so excited about what we're doing that we don't exercise any restraint. You know, when you're, you're looking at like, you know, I'm going to use a comparison of Michael Phelps swimming. And, you know, when he's getting into, you know, we're coming up on an Olympics, we're hearing stories of how much he eats and how many hours he's spending in the pool and things like that. And, and for runners, we need to train this aerobic system, but we need our, our legs not to break. Uh, running is an impact sport. And so it's, it's not like you can jump in the pool and just, you know, hammer yourself day after day and kind of wait for your body to catch up. We've got to be careful not to get broken. And so I think what I, what I advise my, my new athletes and, and new athletes in terms of new to the sport of running is just to be, be careful about how you're increasing intensity and volume and do it gradually. And I think if you can get onto some program that's sustainable, it's going to do you so much more good in the long run than if you just get hyper excited about this new fad that you're into and you train hard for two months and then you get shin splints and you have to take two weeks off. And then you're frustrated at having to take two weeks off. And so you get back into it and you're ready to train again and you hammer it again for two months. And then guess what? You're injured again. And, um, and so I think to me, the best approach is to try to be patient and sustainable. And it doesn't mean we don't push because we still push. You still have hard days, but it means after a hard day, you wake up the next day and say, you know what? I need to exercise some restraint and take it a little bit easy today because we pushed hard yesterday. And, you know, I increased volume last week. And so this week I need to just keep the volume the same, even though I feel good. And so, uh, you know, I think it becomes the coach's job to exercise a little bit of big picture restraint. And it becomes the athlete's job to pay attention to how you feel day to day. And when you're tired, listening to that. And when you feel good, taking advantage of feeling good, subject to the restraint that you're coach or your supervisor has given you in terms of your weekly volume and your intensity and in workouts. When a person who's, you know, transitioning from say doing a, like the weekend 5k to like their first marathon, what is like, I mean, broad, it's going to be different for every, for every athlete, but like sort of broadly speaking, what does that look like? How long does it take for someone who's never run a marathon before to work up to that point where they can do a marathon? Well, it, you know, if you're already running a 5k, then, then you're, you're a lot further along than someone who's not running at all. So, so those, those are different approaches. So someone who's not running at all, we're going to start with some, some walking and some walking slash jogging. And, um, and it's probably going to take someone coming off their couch, at least in, in how I like to train a, a 5k, um, for a 5k, it's going to probably take someone coming off their couch to me two or three months before I say, okay, let's put you in a 5k. And then, but, but I think once you're running three miles, um, I don't know that it's that crazy to think about building up to a marathon. Now it seems crazy on paper, but, um, when I was in college training for 5ks and 10ks and then transition to running the marathon, I think you'd be surprised at similarities in my training, you know, in college, you know, I probably went to running 20 or 30% more volume per week and maybe not even quite that much. Maybe it was more like, 
15 to 25% more volume. And my long runs got a little longer and my intervals got a little bit longer and a little bit shorter. So, you know, instead of running mile repeats on the track, I was running two, two mile repeats on the road. And so instead of doing four or five by mile, I was doing three by two mile. And so it, it wasn't maybe as drastic as it, of a change as you might think. And so for someone who's transitioning from, Hey, I ran a 5k and I just want to run a marathon. We start with saying, okay, let's leave your training the same, except for your weekend long run. And let's, gr- let's start gradually building volume to a weekly long run. And then as we start adjusting to that volume, we might make a couple of changes to their midweek workouts or their weekly mileage in general with the in excess, in excess to the additional mileage they're going to get from a longer weekend long run. But I think that's the big picture is just getting that volume up on that one day a week. And if we can build to, you know, 15, 16, 17 miles on a long run, then, uh, when I taper you off and you're well rested, I think you're ready to run a marathon. Okay. So it's not that not rocket science. No, no, it's not. And I think it's, it's more doable than you might think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, like you say, okay, I, I've done, I can do a 5k, probably not great, but knowing that I could do a 5k that I could work up to a marathon, that's, that's, that gives me hope. Yeah. Give me 16 weeks with you, man. We'll get you Okay. There. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll see. I'll, I might take you up on that. Maybe yeah, not. Yeah, we'll do it. Do it. Take me up on it. We might have to cut back on your lifting a little bit, but. Oh no. Lose my gains. <laughs> My precious gains. Well, so you mentioned uh, injuries. Um, shin splints is a common one. Like, yeah, runners often, I mean, some of these guys, they're just injuring themselves left and right. What's the common cause of all these injuries? Is just pushing yourself too hard? Uh, is that what it is? Well, I think so. You know, if we, you know, if you, if you uh, were to say, you know, for the, the average middle-aged runner that hasn't really done anything super active since high school or or maybe college, you know, you take 10 years and you do a lot of sitting and a lot of walking, and then you go to running, you're, you're using a lot of muscles very differently than you've used them for the last decade. And so while the ambition might be there, and while you still might have that same high school athlete mind, you've got to be a little bit patient with, um, with where your body's at. And there are things we can do to help, right? I mean, I think if you're, if you're, into the wrong pair of shoes, a, sh- a pair of shoes that's not not agreeing with the way that your foot's shaped or the way that you make contact with the ground or things like that, then that's certainly going to lead to a higher likelihood of getting injured. But I but I do think you're right, Brett, in general, it's just that we're not we're just not being quite patient enough as we build up. And and it's a hard balance and I get it, you know, when when we decide we want to do something, we want that thing done yesterday. And so, and that's, that's part of the, you know, that's the beauty of, of, and the curse of, of high achieving minds is that when, when you set yourself out to something, you want it done right now. And, um, and I think we just have to be a little bit patient with the process and, and hopefully still have some of those days where we can say, Hey, you know what, let's, uh, let's turn it loose. Let's run, let's see what happens. But, um, but then on the flip side of that coin, coming back and saying, okay, now, let's look at what we were doing three months ago and we're doing quite a bit more now than we were doing three months ago. So maybe it's time to exercise some restraint. So let's uh, geek out with some statistics here. You did your okay. thesis for your master's uh, on st- in statistics on analyzing runners split times in the St. George marathon. Uh, what were your key takeaways about ideal pacing from analyzing? Um, man, I had so much fun with that project and I, and I realized, um, I realized that, uh, that I'm labeling myself as a nerd right here and, and I'm okay with that. Um, 
that that was a fun way for me to to cross the paths i guess or the the interests of running and of uh and of the research and the analytics that i do statistics and so um we had some cool takeaways. I, you know, I was working with this data before I had run my first marathon. So I was acutely interested in what the data said and, uh, and what we could learn from, from, uh, people competing in the St. George marathon. And we really, we, we used Boston qualifiers, uh, or runners that hit a Boston qualifying mark as our indicator of, um, faster runners in this data set. And so, so you could argue that, uh, it, it may or may not apply directly to, to kind of Olympic level athletes. But, um, but what we learned was that the people who qualified for Boston were being a lot more patient in their pace. So relative to their average pace, they were starting more conservative. They did a better job at taking advantage of downhills. And I think some of that related to the more average runners, just, um, you know, coming out of the gates, so hard at the beginning that by the time they got to to incredible downhill portions later in the race that they otherwise could have taken advantage of their their legs were hammered and so we we just saw a lot of you know it seemed like over and over we were seeing patience is better patience is better um you know exercise some restraint save it for the downhill sections later to take advantage and bank up some time later we also saw that ladies do a better job at uh, exercising this pacing restraint than men do it might not come as a surprise um, to us, but uh, uh, and then you know that as runners age, they got a little bit better at pacing, and so um, I think it was also encouraging to think that even after a runner has maybe passed their physical prime, they might still be able to expect to see lifetime best performances because they're getting a little bit smarter as they learn how to pace and, uh, and train just a little bit better. So, so kind of some cool stuff, but, uh, and you could argue that it wasn't earth shattering, but it, but it validated uh, a few thoughts like start patient before my first marathon and, and some things like that, that I think, um, contributed at least in some small ways, uh, before I really had any marathon experience under my belt. Are you still like looking at data and using your statistics chops to shape your own training or how you approach races? Sure. You know, we am working on a project still, um, analyzing kind of how stride length and stride rate changes across the course of a marathon and how that maybe relates to fatigue and some other things like that. And so, um, so yes, I'm, I'm always interested in new research. I'm interested in what the research says for getting ready for a hot marathon. And I'm interested in what the research says as it relates to lifting and interested in what research says as it relates to oxygen uptake requirements and different types of running shoes. And can we come up with optimal running shoes for running the marathon and, and design those and things like that. And so, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm certainly excited about that kind of stuff, but you know, ultimately the, the gold standard is experience and and every marathon that I run, I learn something else about myself and something else about the marathon. And I think while the data and the analytics provide some good counsel in general. Everybody's so different that the gold standard for you and anybody else should be your own personal experience. And, and so the data can help when you're in an early marathoner. But as you, you know, as you become more experienced, I would, I would more heavily weight your experience to data in general. Well, Jared, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work and what you do? Sure. So I'm, I try to be active on my social media. So jwardy21 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and try to keep you updated on, on all the upcoming fun. Well, Jared Ward, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks a million, Brett. 
My guest today was Jared Ward. He's an Olympic marathon runner. You can follow what he's doing at his Twitter account at, at jwardy21 or check out his website, coachjaredward.com, where you can find information about his coaching services if that's something you're interested in. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Olympic marathon, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find all of our podcast archives. There's over 500 there. We've also got thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finance. We've got articles about running as well, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. Check it out, artofmanliness.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you can find out when we get a new post up daily or weekly. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.